Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. One of the interesting uh, parts of hosting and moderating this program is uh, is when things happen, when current events happen, um, and especially relative to this investigation, relative to the 15th Mew, uh, it's been a little bit different. Uh, I have friends that have expertise in, in, in Amtrak operations, been part of lots of Mews, and uh, unlike the aviation community, we're not afraid to talk about our stuff in public. Uh, normally, when these mishaps happen... A lot of them are aviation, and to get people to come on and talk uh, and explain stuff is is not easy. Uh, my friends uh, are comfortable coming on, uh, understand the left and right limits of what we try to do, which is not essentially blame anybody, but explain what happened, what needs to be corrected. In doing that, uh, especially this time, with the depth that we've kind of gone into the investigation surrounding the... Uh, uh, the death of eight Marines and uh, one sailor, a Navy corpsman, uh, who were on board an Amtrak that was assigned to the 15th Mew with BLT-14. Uh, the depth that we've kind of gone into that has sparked some really interesting discussions. And I've met a, a number of interesting people who have who have listened to it and have serious thoughts about them. One of those people, uh, retired Marine Colonel Walt Yates, uh, joins me this morning First of all, Walt, uh, I want to thank you for reaching out, and uh, welcome to All Marine Radio. Thank you very much. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to discuss this with you. All right, and uh, so let me just uh, let me just tell everybody what we're going to talk about, or, or Walt, let me give you the floor, and you can tell everybody what we're going to talk about. You listened to our uh, pretty lengthy discussion about findings of fact uh, relative to that investigation, and. Uh, and uh, give us the bottom line. Uh, what is the bottom line relative to your thoughts and experience uh, relative to uh, Marine Corps safety, our ability to do ground safety, and uh, and the way it exists in the system of training that is the United States Marine Corps? Yeah, um, well, I, I listened to the, uh, the the analysis that you did on the findings of fact of the investigation, and I had been reading over those myself and, and completely concur. I learned a lot um, from the discussion because I have only one uh, new deployment under my belt. I was with a Hilo company on that one. And so I, I learned a lot about the actual Amtrak operations. The, the thing that caused me to reach out and contact you was the findings of this investigation with respect to the lack of training, lack of training policy, lack of training capacity for underwater egress for emergency egress from Amtrak's was eerily similar to the findings of a aviation mishap investigation almost three years to the day before the AAV from 15th Mew um, sank. And the, it, it really bothered me that the very same safety issues and training issues appeared in two investigations and there was an apparent lack of action to correct those deficiencies in the policy. And that lack of action, that would be incumbent upon leaders, uh, general officers of the Marine Corps, yes? 
Yes. Uh, the, the other thing that's striking about both of these investigations is that uh, the investigating officer in the scope is directed downward from at, at the, the MU command level and below. And while that's fine, there is a, a huge component of unexamined, I'll use the word culpability, for the supporting establishment, um, which is Headquarters Marine Corps to include Training and Education Command, Deputy Commandant for Capabilities Development and Integration, and Marine Corps Systems Command, of which I was a part as uh, the Acquisition Program Manager for Training Systems. Um, those organizations provide the resources and the policy that the operating forces follow and execute. And th that's where I saw glaring omissions in, in the, the uh, inquiry. It just didn't go where it needs to in that respect. Okay. The, um, and again, you're talking about people that, that would take recommendations that come out of an investigation and they make the decisions that apply dollars to the recommendations and, that come out of these investigations so that these things don't happen in the future. So that they make policy decisions and they apply money to safety systems that might be used in training and safety programs. So that's what we're talking about. It, exactly. It's, it's in the, the generic sense in the, the civilian world, process control. You have policy and you have uh, material resources and, and you put together a program to, to uh, provide a capability. And in the Marine Corps, they, they refer to this by a, an acronym called JSIDS. Um, and within that, you know, not, not important to go into the acronym, but there's a, a, an analysis process for how do we correct this issue, how do we create a capability, and it has elements of doctrine, organization, training, uh, material solutions or acquisitions, uh, leadership, personnel, and facilities. And my particular interest is in the area of doctrine or policy and the material solutions and resources to, uh, to bring that into being. Okay. Um, I'm going to hit pause here. And then we, I want to meet you, Walt, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this. But a general comment, um, I don't have the uh, experience and the training that you have and the perspective you have relative to this in terms of systems. Um, but I have seen the, um, the 15th Mew investigation. I've seen pieces of the investigation into the F-18 KC-130J uh, mishap. I've seen an endorsement and some snippets of an investigation of an Amtrak that went down off the coast of Camp Lejeune in 2019. All are eerily similar in terms of what you're talking about, and that is conclusions that don't appear to be followed up, systems that don't appear to be fixed, people who don't read orders, and leaders who don't enforce those things. And so mm -hmm. to me, um, this trend of organizational lack of discipline is is manifests itself. And again, and we all know this, um, the Marines will be anything we require of them. That is the nature of the United States Marines. Yeah. When, when we tell them, this is where we're going and this is what we're doing, boys and girls, grab your shit, let's go, they do it. So the, the, it's not the Marines that are in question here. It's people who lead Marines that, in my opinion, are failing, failing to lead them, failing to do the things that they are supposed to do 
that are that are getting Marines killed, and you see it. This trend is incredibly disturbing when you lay these investigations side by side by side. Yeah. So, and, and it, it goes directly to failure to uphold our core values of honor, courage, and commitment to those Marines. You know, all volunteers for you know the the lifetime of anybody in in active duty service now um, was not even eighteen years old when the all volunteer force began, right. and. So nobody's being drafted. This is not wartime um, in, in the sense that we're in a hurry. We should be doing things the right way. And, you know, this, this is a, a, a separate, larger discussion. But there are 471 Marine Corps orders that are listed as current in, uh, in, in the Marine Corps publication uh, library system. And the Orders and Directives Management order, the, the Marine Quarter 52, 15.1 kilo, says that they should be revised and updated at least every nine years. Over 200 of those orders are older than nine years old, including the directives management order. The Marine Corps doesn't read or follow its own policy. So when you look at some of these old orders signed by General Alfred M. Gray, um, and say, what relevance does this have to today? That, you know, all the references are outdated and obsolete. The organizational charts are irrelevant. They don't even have this organization. And in my estimation, a big part of that is that not people in uniform, but people in senior civilian positions will keep an order around strictly for the purpose of telling somebody no that, hey, I've got a great idea, we should be doing business differently. And it's like, I'm sorry, we can't do that. There's an order signed in the mid-1990s that prohibits that. And and that's a huge frustration. All right. So I want to hit pause. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how you get introduced into this world, right, of investigations, of recommendations, of relative to training, of relative recommendations relative to procurement and then somebody says yeah we're not buying that yeah somebody says oh maybe not right so you have investigate you have mishap investigation and then and then corrective action implementation and we're going to talk about how you get involved in that so let's talk about you uh born and raised where uh las cruces new mexico Um, wow that's a dump huh well how'd you get how'd you escape las cruces well uh, i uh when it came time to, to apply for college, I'd applied to a couple of service academies. I had some nominations from the uh, congressional delegation. But then my father's alma mater at Texas A&M University offered me not only uh, I, I had an ROTC scholarship, um, but also a, a scholarship from the college. And I said, I, th- I think I'll follow in dad's footsteps. So I went to Texas A&M and graduated in 1990. Uh, so you're one, of the, you're one of those guys with I, the big top. One of those guys with the big tall boots and all that. Yep. yep. You, have you? Would you say that you recovered from the experience, or are you still are you still parading around on in those boot, I, the boots I, on I occasion? Celebrated on April twenty first, uh, San Jacinto Day, as as we say in Texas, and um, Aggie muster and so forth. Still, oh, wow. still uh, immersed in those traditions, I guess. <laughs> all right. Well, we won't hold you, hold that against you. Um, so why, why the, was your father a Marine? Uh, why the Marine Corps? He was, he was not interesting story. I, I said, I had an ROTC scholarship. I, I had two, uh, when I showed up at A&M, I was going to follow in dad's footsteps and go into the air force as well. But they, uh, they told me upon arrival there during freshman orientation week, 
you're not cleared, you've got a heart murmur and we're not sure about that. And the Marine Corps' attitude was, we'll deal with it when it becomes a problem. So I, I went to the Marine Corps and realized uh, this is where I belonged. Uh, I, I've never looked back. So that's that's how I ended up in the Marine Corps. Love that. Love that. All right. You, you join the Marine Corps and you become uh, initially a field artillery officer. Is that what you wanted to be? Did you not want to be no, was, one, of uh, God, one of God's children, an infantryman? <laughs> that was actually... Uh, uh, I, I had two uncles who were in the army. One was infantry and the other was in the artillery. And I uh, came to appreciate the, uh, the, the aspects of the field artillery community. And, and so I, I, it was my first choice and uh, went to Fort Sill and graduated in 1991. Um, went to 10th Marines, had uh, two tours at 10th Marines, a tour on INI duty with uh, Delta 214 in El Paso. And then... Uh, got separated from my tribe and could not find my way back after going to Naval Postgraduate School, which is how it usually happens. Exactly, right. NPS is a sin that the ground combat element does not forgive. Does not forgive, (laughs) right? So you become one of them. So explain to everybody what Naval Naval Postgraduate School is. You become part of the, you know, brainiacs of the Marine Corps, which the rest of us shun. Okay, so uh, so you're obviously an intelligent human being. You have to we don't give that away. You've got to be able to do it and uh, explain to everybody what it is and then explain to everybody where you go and what you do after you go. Okay, so Naval Postgraduate School is a um, military graduate school. The the counterpart is the Air Force uh, Institute of Technology. um, And it's where the military sends people to get technical master's graduate degrees, master's and PhD in subjects that aren't offered in civilian graduate schools. So there's a lot of weapons technology. um, And I found myself in the modeling virtual environments and simulation curriculum there. I was in the first class of three that the Marine Corps decided to send to become modeling and simulation uh, experts. And, uh, that turned out to be a, a growth industry uh, in, in the military. So um, I, I did my my focus was on training in human performance. How do you how do you create training systems that actually produce skill? Here, here's one of the, the ironic things. We have the word training in the name of lots of organizations from acquisition program managers to training and education command all over the Marine Corps. But training is just an activity. You can spend every dime of your budget doing that activity, but what we really care about is the skill that is the output of training. And uh, very unfortunately on the ground side of the Marine Corps, it's been my observation that we measure training by the resources we consume and not the skills that we produce. Aviators are a little bit ahead of us in that by a generation in that they measure things by skill and performance um, evaluations. So their, their budgets are a lot tighter. They, they compete much better in the budgeting process than ground training because they focus on the outputs instead of the activity. Talk to me about you leave Monterey and wh- where do you go as you, uh, do, as you repay uh, the Marine Corps for this, uh, this privilege of going to Naval Postgraduate School? What do you, so what I, do you, what do you become? I, I did not know this when I arrived at Naval Postgraduate School, but I was already predestined for beautiful Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms. Yes. At, 
to, to be the uh, officer in charge of the battle simulation center there. Um, and that was at a, at a time when infantry battalions were deploying for seven months with maybe six months back in, in CONUS before they deployed again. I mean, it, it was the highest op tempo. And so people were, were going through the what they first called RCACs, the Revised Combined Arms Exercise Program, then became Mojave Viper, um, and that's evolved today into the Integrated Training Exercise, or ITX program. But it, at the time, I, I arrived there, and simulation on the ground side of the Marine Corps at that time meant two things. It went, meant MTWAS, the MAGTAF Tactical Warfare Simulation, for training battle staffs and command post exercises. And then on the low end, it meant the indoor simulated marksmanship trainer. And there was really very little in between. So at that time, as you may recall, Congress is dumping huge amounts of, of supplemental appropriations on the military, uh, particularly the Army and the Marine Corps, for what was termed GWAT, Global War on Terrorism, or now OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations. And there was no idea that it was too crazy or too expensive if it might save the life of a Marine from an IED or a sniper. So I was in the right place at the right time to, uh, to, to make some recommendations on how that money was spent. So we got some systems like the operator, or excuse me, the uh, virtual combat convoy trainer, which you can uh, uh, equate to a flight simulator on the ground for a convoy of Humvees and, and trucks. Um, the operator driver simulator, which isn't sexy, but it keeps people from killing themselves in vehicle rollovers, which was a huge problem when we hung thousands of pounds of armor on, on vehicles that weren't designed for it. And the, the Humvee uh, and, and um, MTVR egress trainers, because once those things do get flipped over, getting out of them quickly is, is uh, absolutely critical. And the deployable virtual training environment for um, computer-based computer uh, tactical decision-making. Um, you could liken it to first-person shooter video games, but the, the purpose is tactical uh, small unit training. So the, that's that's what I did from 2004 to 2007, and being presumptively at the end of my uh, Marine Corps career or nearing it, because you you missed the war, you you spent two years at Naval Postgraduate School. I thought I was going to be retiring as a major in 2010, and so I went to uh, do my final tour at PM Training Systems in Orlando on the staff, and the highly unlikely happened. I found myself selected for Lieutenant Colonel on the third look. And then realized I'm no longer relevant in the artillery. You can't go back. So I became an acquisition management officer in 2010 and uh, did a tour, completed that tour at PM Training Systems, then went to Marine Corps Systems Command Headquarters for three years, um, and then came back uh, for my final tour from 2014 to 2018 as the program manager for training systems. Got it. So it's in that capacity that in... Uh, is it 2016 or 17 when the 31st Mew has its Osprey uh, crash? Yeah, it was uh, August 5th, 2017. Um, a, a MV-22B from VMM-265 assigned to the 31st Mew was doing operations off the coast of uh, Australia, um, off Queensland. And the Osprey is coming in for a landing on the USS Green Bay and it uh, hit the edge of the, the deck um, and flipped over as it was coming into land. The Osprey um, ends up in the water. Three Marines die in that. Two 
two of the air crew, and this is an important distinction between the air crew and the passengers because they, they go through different training programs, but the, uh, the co-pilot who was actually at the controls and the crew chief died and one of the Marine passengers. There were 26 aboard the aircraft, 21 passengers, five air crew, or excuse me, 20, yeah, 26 total, uh, five, five air crew and 21 passengers. The passengers, critical finding from this um, mishap investigation, the passengers were all from the artillery battery assigned to the battalion landing team. And none of them were on the roster of what was at the time called frequent flyers, which is important because frequent flyers are required, at least in theory, to go through the full underwater egress training program. More, more on what that is later. Non-frequent flyers, which the artillery battery was, was not a helo company and it was not considered to be, a, a, they didn't travel on Amtrak's, were infrequent flyers, and so they were exempted from this full course of training. Well, after during the investigation, it becomes a very interesting point of discussion. They should have been trained in hindsight, so who, who was and who wasn't? They found that 13 of the 21 passengers had gone to the underwater egress training. Only 11 had passed it, and two had failed, and so you think about unconscionable decisions. We have two Marines who have attempted and failed to pass underwater egress training, and we put them on a helicopter or vertical lift aircraft over water anyway. And there, in the interview, uh, the, the statements of the air combat element uh, commander, the commander of VMM 265 in that investigation, he expresses shock at the fact that I thought we were carrying trained Marines who knew how to egress an aircraft in the water. Come to find out they weren't trained. The BLT did not know that they weren't trained at the time. And, um, and the training that they get is not even uniform. And there's apparently a huge capacity problem with this. So that's where my, my interest at the time is, as the, program manager comes into play because I'm the, I'm the manager for the underwater egress trainers and the family of egress trainers um, as, that feels that. And so we only have four underwater egress training systems in the Marine Corps. Um, those are at the, the, at the MEF headquarters installations primarily, Camp Lejeune, Camp Pendleton, um, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii for 3rd Marine Regiment, and Camp Hansen, Okinawa. We have only four, and each of those sites has um, what we call cabs, two cabs. A cab is the fuselage of a, simulates the fuselage of an aircraft for what we call the MATE, the M-A-E-T, Modular Amphibious Egress Trainer, and it simulates the, the back half of an AAV and the front the other end of it simulates the cab of a Humvee for the submersible vehicle egress trainer, or SVET, as we call it. And then there's a third device called the SWET, or the dunker chair. This SWET stands for shallow water egress trainer, which is a first uh, a first step before you get to the dunker trainer, where you have a bunch of Marines in the same closed compartment trying to escape underwater at the same time. Uh, so well, well, let me let me pause you and ask you a question um, relative to the investigation. 
you said there was two members who flew that failed uh, the helo dunker training. Do we have any way yes. of knowing that if any of the casualties, well, the one casualty that came out of the back, do we have any way of knowing if, if that casualty was one of the ones that failed the helo dunker training? Well, let me start by saying I saw the unredacted investigation because I was still in uniform at the time. But the information that you're referring to is covered by redactions in the publicly released version of the investigation. And this is an interesting point. You can go to the Headquarters Marine Corps, Headquarters Marine Corps FOIA Freedom of Information Act reading room. And this investigation, among several others, uh, is, is posted there with redactions. So if you look at this 2017 report of the investigation, which actually came out in March of 2018, and compare it to the one from the 15th MU, you're going to see some stark differences in what the public is allowed to know. In that 2017 investigation, every one of the opinions and recommendations of the investigating officer and all of the generals who endorsed it are redacted. So you don't know if you're in the public um, what the uh, you don't know what happened. You have the findings of fact, and you're left to draw your own opinions and conclusions. But you don't get to see what the official ones are. Now, to the to the credit of the 15th Mu investigation, um, the staff judge advocates or the commanders or whoever made the decision, you get to read everything there. Um, but uh, I think it's a key point that Congress, if anybody is listening can read and answer that question very quickly or push for declassification. I, a few weeks ago, after I read the 15th Mew investigation and compared it to the, uh, the 31st Mew investigation, I submitted a, a follow-up FOIA request and requesting uh, that these sections be unredacted. That was rejected, uh, you know, very, very, in a matter of three days, um, yeah, just for the record, when you send in a FOIA request, you don't get an answer in three days. Yeah, is that fair? Well, the, yeah, that that's I have I have not submitted FOIA requests before this one, but it was such an obvious contrast that why are we able to see all this investigation, all of these opinions and recommendations on the AAV mishap, and why is it concealed and redacted from the public in in the uh, the MV twenty two mishap? Okay, so, so the bottom line, though, is this for my question. Um, you can't answer because the knowledge that you have, you got while you were on active duty, it is currently redacted. Yes? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. So just for the record, you, you, he did not say, no, Mac, that is not the case. He said, I can't answer that. All right. All right. So, so let, let's, talk about, let's talk about the findings. You know, let's talk about the recommendations that come out of the – and again, for me, the 31st Mew, that event is something I'll never forget. My son was part of the Hilo Company in, in Ospreys, and I'm, I'm in Indianapolis for my youngest sister's uh, second wedding. And all of a sudden, I see an AP story, Osprey in the water, uh, 26 Marines on board, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, again, as a father, Marine, your son becomes a Marine, and now I can picture him upside down in the dark in the water, right? And you don't know if your kid's alive or dead, right? And I'll never, I, you know, I will never forget that experience, how shitty it was. And I was fortunate. My kid 
um, um, was not on that aircraft. And, um, and so, and I followed the investigation pretty closely relative to uh, the NALC bottles that give you extra oxygen relative to, to helo dunker training. Who mans the helo dunkers and why are their hours of operation so limited? Because that restricts throughput, blah, 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 blah. So talk, talk about what comes out of that investigation and walk everybody through the process of um, when these things come out. Who then gets the recommendations? Who gets who gets tagged to take action on these things? And how do the things that come out of investigations become things that that help save lives in the future? Walt. Right. Okay. So the uh, the investigate report of investigation was circulated internally in March of 2018, uh, which is when I first saw it. And that's a few weeks before the redacted version is released under FOIA and posted for, for everyone to see. So in that space of time, the, there's action, there's a lot of message traffic and discussion about, okay, how do we, we being, and I'm speaking specifically of the training and education uh, infrastructure um, on that, the ground side. That, that, you were part, that you were part of at the time. That I was part of at the time. I was the acquisition, the material solution provider. Training and Education Command is the what we call the requirement and the resource sponsor. They develop the policy and they submit the budget request for training capability. So I was, you know, the, the aviation community, they're focused on the, the air loss of the aircraft, what went into that. Our focus in at the program office and at Training and Education Command was, okay, the, there are some pretty concerning findings of fact in, and opinions and recommendations for which training and education command is assigned to take action. So on page, you know, you can go on the, the website and download this and, and read it, but to, to quote from the findings of fact in that investigation, on page 34, sections 341 to, or findings of fact 341 to 345, Acknowledge that what I told you before that uh, there were 21 passengers aboard of which only 13 had attended training, et cetera, et cetera. Then in going to the enclosures to that investigation where you actually read the words of the person being interviewed, um, it, it gets very concerning because the, the, air, um, the ace commander, the commander of the composite squadron says, uh, I'm quoting from the investigation, he says, that's my own assessment just kind of sitting here on the top. That's something I've never heard anybody in the ACE, the air combat element, asking people getting on the aircraft if they are trained. I think there's an assumption that if you're part of the MU, then you're going, you've been through training. And come to find out, we don't even have the capacity to train everybody. And so what they do is they cherry pick. Hey, this guy flies a lot. Make sure he goes to training. And apparently there's no SOP about if somebody fails, you know, do they even get to come back on the Mew or are they moved to a non-flying type situation? I think those are all changes. And he goes on to say um, in a couple paragraphs later, they're supposed to go to SWET, H-A-B-D, and H-A-B-D stands for Helicopter Assisted Breathing Device Bottle and Helo Dunker. But again, there is such a you know, I hear the classes are no more than 20 people and they can only run like two a day. 
well, those numbers don't work out. You know, if you've got, and it's not open every single day. So if you're trying to get a BLT of 1300 Marines through that and trying to get the ACE through theirs, I think we're given three days to get all of our people trained. And it was a huge push at the squadron. It was everybody will go one of these days. So again, I think there's a serious capacity issue with training that if you do fail, obviously you should go back and redo the training, but I don't think that's even entertained because, well, you had your chance. No, we've got more people to do uh, this training on, unquote. So this is a glaring indictment that we don't have enough training capacity. We only have four of these devices. So there's, you go through the analysis process, how do we fix this? Well, there's, there's many options. You can buy more devices for one. You could, you could make this something that is not a commander and unit responsibility in the fleet. You could train people at entry level training. You know, suppose we had a training pool at Camp Geiger and, and, and at uh, Marine Corps uh, Recruit Depot or at School of Infantry West at Pendleton where you could train people so they're a full up round ready to deploy when they go to their MOS school. They've already got this under their belt. Those are options, but they cost money and time and people don't want to build, spend training budget on building pools and dunkers. It's, you know, there, there's a strong bias in training toward lethality training. And I understand that, but we need to have some balance there in, in the resources. But that's the a, that, that's that's a conscious decision by somebody who's balancing requirements and money and saying, yeah, that doesn't break squelch. That doesn't make our top fifteen. Exactly. We're not doing it. Yeah, and okay. and so why why not? You know, will Congress not give the Marine Corps the money? I think they will. But the problem is the reason that the the Marine Corps doesn't ask for it is because Congress will require hard choices. And they'll say, okay. What are you willing to give up in order to get this budget for force preservation training or force protection training, as opposed to, you know, you've asked for this much in total budget authority. How are you going to balance this? And the answer is we don't want to give up anything. We've got, you know, force transformation and and the um, the lethality training, enemy focus training. And so they just don't ask for it. That's my my opinion from from observing how the process works. But again, that's again, we have other higher priorities, right? You know, yes. equipment modernization, you know, we're doing this with personnel, we've got this program, yes. all have for us a higher priority than than safety. Yeah. Okay. So so but the the buying new equipment and establishing new training locations is one option. It it's maybe the most intuitive, but the other option is okay, how much throughput could we get out of our four sites that we already have? Can we open the aperture? And the answer is absolutely yes. So underwater egress training is is a little bit different from a lot of Marine Corps training in that you have civilian contractors with safety diver certification and and experts, um, most of them former Marines um, and military, but you have contractors providing the training to uh, the Marines. So the answer is we, we run this eight hours a day and we have maintenance cycles and, and so forth. Well, what if we had two shifts? What if we had three shifts and, and ran them around the clock? You could dramatically increase the throughput on this. There's nothing that says you can't do underwater egress training between midnight and 
zero four in the morning, if that's when it's available. Those were never seriously entertained and, and not even frankly mentioned. And here's why. If you go back to 2011, not a single year in the past 10 years has the program office's cost estimate for the, the money needed for operations and maintenance, um, refurbishment and upgrade so that you maintain concurrency with, you know, the, the, the SVET has not been budgeted to, to model the amphibious combat vehicle. The seating configuration is different, but for the time being, and as far as anybody can tell in the future, it's still going to be an AAV trainer. But all the budget for that, since 2011, every program office estimate from PM Training Systems submitted to TCOM has been reduced. And even more than that, the, the money that has been allocated has been what we term taxed. Um, in contradiction to SECNAV instructions and higher level policy, the sustainment tail for these training systems, not just underwater egress trainer, but, but all training systems managed by PM Traces, does not go to the comptroller at Marine Corps Systems Command. It goes to the comptroller at Training and Education Command. And so year after year, you'll get $6.5 million for O&M on, on the family of egress trainers, but you only actually transfer from TCOM $5.6 million. So there are these, these taxes and these withholdings that means you're even farther below what, what your cost estimates say you need to run this. So when you ask for two and three shifts of contractors, oh, that's, that's way off the, the, the mark because you're not even getting the money you asked for to fully run the, the, the trainers for a daytime training throughput. And now, uh, because of these investigations, you're suggesting, and this is not the first time I've heard this suggestion, suggestion you're suggesting that we add either a second and possibly a third shift if required, not even – you know, not even close, right? Relative to the reality of our budget. Yeah, and I, I will say this: in the, in the um, the month or so after the, um, you know, I need to correct myself. It was May of 2018 when these when when the report of that investigation came out. But before the end of May, there were already course of actions being briefed to the CG of Training and Education Command on how do we address the findings here. Well. None of those findings, none of those courses of actions developed at TCOM included adding more shifts. Um, and, and in fact, some of them were, were flagrantly off the mark in that our solution to this lack of training throughput is to field more sweat trainers and just consider people fully trained when they go through sweat. So that would no, be don't. that would be lowering the requirement. So again, exactly. It, it, go through what the sweat chair is and and compare that to the dunker. And just so everybody okay. understands that what we're actually d- discussing is, well, let's make the lower safety requirement the requirement and call it good, right? Because that because that can exist inside the confines of our budget. Yeah. So the, the sweat chair is a device that, that sits in the pool and is rotated by um, upside down. It, it simulates the cockpit of an aircraft uh, is really what it's built around. So you have somebody buckled into a, a seat and then the frame in which they are sitting in the pool that floats above water is rotated upside down. So they are upside down, uh, 
buckled into a cockpit seat and they release the, the buckles and swim out of this virtual cockpit and that's mission complete. And maybe they combine that with some uh, supplemental breathing device. So you breathe off the oxygen bottle before you get out of there. But the key distinction is sweat is one person at a time getting out of a seat. It is not a closed compartment with a dozen Marines in close confines underwater, all struggling to get out of there in an orderly fashion. That's a key difference. You can't really compare the two in, in my estimation, because one is a dark closed space with a lot of other people and equipment. And the other is just you buckled into a, a cockpit seat. So that's, that's what the sweat chair is. Got it. And none of the COAs, none of the COAs that I saw briefed in, in May of uh, 2018 included the recommendation of the investigating officer that everybody who is going to be assigned to a MEW and either fly over the water in a vertical lift aircraft or swim through the water in an amphibious uh, assault vehicle should have the full gamut of training. That was not in any of the, uh, the briefs. And frankly, the, you know, they, the, the COAs that were described were listed as low impact, medium impact, high impact, and even the high impact one uh, didn't uh, on budgets and resources didn't really address what was recommended in the investigation. So uh, the outcome of this, the, the all of the recommendations and long-term solution were supposed to result in an update to the NAVMAC 3500 point, I want to say 41, the, the uh, Marine Corps Common Skills Training and Readiness Manual. Now, every MOS community has a, a, a TNR manual, but the common skills are the ones that every Marine is supposed to train. Uh, some of them every six months, some of them every 12 months, some of them every 24 months, but common skills are common to every Marine. And the, the NAVMAC, the, the TNR manual, was supposed to be updated. That was a stated intention back in May. Well, fast forward till December of 2018, there's been a change of command at TCOM. Um, the, the attention to the, the Osprey mishap has waned. The new common skills TNR comes out. There is no mention of underwater egress training at all in that, in that policy. Um, and you go back to 2008 was the last time that the Marine Corps common skills included underwater egress training, egress from a vehicle in aquatic conditions. And the training standard was that you know, for performance was until breathing on the surface. That's how you know you've done it right. Um, and, and so anybody who didn't do that, who needed to be rescued by a safety diver, would obviously have been untrained or unqualified at that point. But none of this was, was entertained. Worse than that, the fact that it didn't show up in the TNR manual in December of 2018, there's a marine admin message 293-18, which I was shocked to find is still in effect today. You can go to the, the marines.mil website and search for maradmin 293-18 that says it, it's titled Establishment of Interim Underwater Egress Training Requirements. And it doesn't, it, all it does is restate existing policy. It's mostly about how do you schedule the underwater egress trainers and it says, our intention is that everybody should get underwater egress training. 
without stating exactly what that is. And, and, and when, when they say everybody, they mean everybody that's involved in the MU? Well, no, it, let me, uh, pardon me just a second. Let me sure. see if I can, uh, I'll, I'll get back to that. I'm, I'm going to bring up that reference, but, but it was more broadly, it was a total, when the Marine Corps uses the term total force, right. it applies to everybody in the Marine Corps, including Marine Forces Reserve. And this was a total force scope uh, instruction for underwater egress training. And the, they were discussing, so how do we get MAR-4 res units trained for um, underwater egress? That was part of the discussion, um, but the, the proposed solutions did not, uh, did not actually address that. But in this um, MAR admin, 295, let, let me see here, 293-18, it includes a paragraph four titled Exceptions. And in those exceptions, um, it's, it says the following. Uh, let me see here. I, I beg your pardon. I'm not, not able to pull that order or that MAR admin up. I, I'm quoting... Uh, quoting from it, though. See. Hold on. I might have it, Walt. I, I think you sent okay. it to me. I yeah, I sent the, I I sent the link to you. You sent me the link. And so if you give me a second, <laughs> um, I, I will pull it up. But but again, I... I uh... Okay, I, I'm sorry. I've, I've got it right here. Okay. Um, so in paragraph four, it says, Exceptions. In the event personnel are unable to complete underwater egress training prior to participating. Now, where, you know, where the hell does this word participating come in? You are assigned. It's not like a, a, an optional thing. But they, the way it's worded, it says, if, if in the event personnel are unable to complete UET prior to participating in rotary wing tilt rotor aircraft operations over water and or AAV waterborne operations, Commander shall adhere to the guidance listed below. These exceptions shall not be used to circumvent UET service level training requirements. Well, you haven't even really stated what those requirements are. But 4A says personnel unable to complete UET prior to participating in rotary wing tilt rotor aircraft flight operations over water shall be briefed on the use of the supplemental emergency breathing device and procedures for underwater egress. Aircraft commanders are responsible for all trained personnel are, that all un, that all untrained personnel are fully briefed prior to flight. The next subparagraph pertains to AAVs and says the same thing. It says AAV commanders are responsible for ensuring all untrained personnel are fully briefed prior to splash. So the Marine Corps has a policy directive, not in a Marine Corps order, but published via MAR admin to right. everyone in the Marine Corps that says we are going to entertain the possibility of putting untrained Marines in tilt rotor heli rotary wing aircraft and in AAVs in the water that are not trained. And we're going to assign responsibility to the vehicle commander and the aircraft commander. That, in, in my personal estimation, is insane. We're, we're, we're replacing training with a safety brief. And this is not just in combat, which is different. You know, you combat has urgencies and, and contingencies that you have to respond to with what you've got. But in training for us to 
in a training environment to say we're going to put untrained Marines in these situations is unconscionable. And, you know, this bears going back briefly to the to the question of orders and directives. MAR admins are frequently used to publish policy that does not require the rigor of of staffing review that Marine Corps orders do. So any Marine Corps order that applies across the Marine Corps to, to the operational forces, the supporting establishment, et cetera, can only be signed by the commandant, the assistant commandant, or the director of the Marine Corps staff, and it has to be reviewed by the commandant's counsel. MAR admins like this one, no counsel or attorney reviews this, and it's released under the authority of whatever general signs it. So th- this is not a rigorously reviewed document. It was a hurried document that was uh, published on, I'm sorry, uh, 25 May 2018. So just about the same time that the public release of the investigation. But that's this was a bad instruction in my estimation when it was published, and it remains in effect today. And it's it's shocking to me that the 15th Mu investigation doesn't even reference this as a policy. Uh, you know the um, it it was the interim policy that has never been replaced by a final policy. Got it. The um so these things now, Walt, um all these recommendations that go into underwater egress training that happen uh, beginning that discussion as you said percolates beginning in May of twenty eighteen. So this yes. is this is two years um two years before the fifteenth Mew incident. Yes. How do, how does training change? What impact does this investigation have? on the training that that, that Marines of the 15th Mew got? None that I can tell. And so uh, I, I retired from active duty, turned over my responsibilities in July of 2018. But this deeply bothered me because it, it's um, it, it was squarely in the wheelhouse of a capability that my program office should have been providing at the direction and with the resources provided by Training and Education Command and ultimately Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources, who, who's the budget guy for the entire Marine Corps. No changes had been made to rescind this MAR admin or change the Marine Corps Order 3500, or excuse me, 3502.3 Bravo, the MU Pre-Deployment Training Program. And the MU PTP order is where the use of these undefined terms, frequent flyer and infrequent flyer, and the the vague language about who was really required to get fully trained appeared. And those were recommendations of the investigating officer in the Osprey mishap fixed this order. A year passed, 11 months passed, between the, the, the report of investigation and nothing had happened. I can, you know, anybody can go on to the Marine Corps uh, publications library website and see that the old order is still in effect. The recommendations have not been implemented. So in April 28, April 2019, as a retired guy, I submitted a complaint to the Marine Corps Inspector General on the failure to update the underwater egress training program. Um, so they register that in the IG uh, case file database. They assign an action officer, and you'll hear back from us when it's complete. Six months later, roughly six months later, September 
uh, 19th of 2019, lo and behold, the new PTP order is updated and the Marine Corps Order 3502.3 Charlie is published. I discover this about a week later and read it, and it doesn't fix the problems. It, it is not responsive to what I was pointing out in the complaint, that there are gaping loopholes that allow commanders to put untrained people on aircraft and in AAVs. So I write a, a fairly detailed letter to the IG action officer who, because it's a, a case under, a complaint under investigation, can't discuss the details with me. And the, the action officer uh, responds and says, I believe your, your comments and concerns that you've raised in this email about the new order are significant and I will include them in the case file, okay? Um, wait a few more months in March of 2020, I get the final disposition letter from the inspector general with the basically dismissing my complaint and saying, we believe that the appropriate organizations and commands have, have taken the necessary action and we consider this case closed and you have misstated whether, um, you know, some of the circumstances about actions not being taken, they called it inaccuracies. But I was never told exactly what I sub said in my complaint that they deemed to be inaccurate. But it was case closed. So your your essentially your complaint then is brushed aside. Yes. Okay. And, and I'd be happy to provide a copy of the complaint and the disposition letter and the um, the, the email correspondence in between uh, to anybody with investigative authority who's interested in seeing it. But it exists. The the IG Marine Corps case file number is 21208, I believe. Um, so if, if GAO or if another IG would be interested in that, um, that's where you would find the complaint, the dismissal of the concerns. And five months later, we have the 15th Mew mishap and nine people are dead um, because of that. So in this, it, when... I was dreading reading the uh, report of investigation from the, the 15th Mew mishap because I was afraid it was going to identify lack of training, and it did. Um, and if you go to, I think it's recommendation number nine on page 59 of the report, the investigating officer quotes exactly the paragraph from the Marine Corps Order 3502.3 Charlie that I wrote about in October of 2019, stating this is not a solution to the problem. And so for the second time, the investigation of a Class A mishap resulting in the death of Marines from drowning in a submerged aircraft or AAV cites lack of training capacity and training policy that is vague and ambiguous and doesn't fully describe who is and who is not allowed to be assigned to these uh, combat vehicles and aircraft. So you read that, and it's, I'm sure it was like a, a, um, not even a, gut, a gut punch isn't even appropriate. It's like a, a crushing blow um, because you've, been, you've yeah. watched this thing percolate up. Yeah, and it's watching a slow-motion train wreck and it, – you know, you hope that it, it um, doesn't result in, in fatalities, but, you know, you're, 
the means of influencing the system from outside as a non-government employee, uh, military retiree, the IG Marine Corps was uh, the only way I knew to try and draw attention to the, the, the policy gap and the failure to adequately provide resources. And uh, it didn't work. Um, it, it, I was disappointed in the level of rigor. I was never actually interviewed and questioned uh, about the, the complaint that I made. If there was anything, they said there were inaccuracies. They never asked me to, uh, to clarify anything that was in the complaint. It was dismissed. And I, I see this as uh, the institution that is unwilling to change the status quo. And when you think about you know, no, no argument with the recommendations and the accountability, personal accountability that was assigned in the investigation. But that small aperture of training capacity through which the operating forces commanders, and this is MEF commander on down, the MU commander and, and the BLT commander, that training capacity is determined by generals who sign budget requests in Quantico and in, in the Beltway. Um, the, the headquarters Marine Corps supporting establishment is not providing the necessary resources and, and not providing a balance in the budget requests for training to balance force protection, force preservation training, and lethality training. And we say we have standards, but this 15th MU is uh, report of investigation shows that those standards are continue to be lacking. Um, so there, there needs to be some oversight of the Marine Corps budget request with respect to this. And there, there's an. Let me, there let, is a hey, Walt. Let me let me ask you. I, I believe it was General Heckle uh, in his endorsement, if I'm not mistaken, who points mm-hmm. out that the, the the vast difference between and General Heckle is an aviator. Yes. Um, General Heckle points out the vast difference between the way the aviation uh, community treats safety and kind of the way the ground combat element treats safety, which is kind of a, it's a pain in the ass thing we do where, where the aviation community sees it as fundamental to what we do. Um, is that what we're seeing is a culture that just, just, just shrugs safety off and say, Hey, we're Marines. We'll do it. And which, let me tell you, which is understandable for young, aggressive Marines that want to go out and train. It's not understandable, though, by the stewards of the, uh, of the institution. And so right. what we're talking about isn't that attitude uh, in our company commanders and battalion commanders and, and, and the Marines and staff NCOs. We're talking about the problem is we still have on the ground side that attitude, and you see it the way it's reflected in orders and budgeting requests, which is what you just alluded to, by the general officers who create the infrastructure that everybody else goes through. Yeah, and so I, I you know, I, I think you could learn a lot if you assessed the performance of senior leadership by looking at what are the budget requests that fell below your cut line? What didn't make it into the budget and what did? And um, I, I, I hate to say this, but I think it is not, the, the evidence supports it, that the, the emphasis that the aviation community places on safety is probably due as, as much 
to the cost of their platforms as it is the value of the human life. MTVR trucks and AAVs don't cost 50 to $60 million and fall out of the sky. And the, you know, the cost consequence and the fact that, well, probably not everyone will die. I think that unfortunately plays a part in how much we are willing to, to, um, to expend in resources and time on training ground combat element, logistics combat element, the, the, and the command element folks who don't fly. Okay, so, uh, so bottom line is our concern as an institution isn't so much with the individual Marine's life. It is that platform is really, really expensive, and so we have to preserve that platform. In order to preserve the platform and not cost ourselves a shit ton of money, we have to invest in the pilot and the safety programs that right. go along with that. That truck, pff, that costs us nothing, okay? Yeah. And so to, to, to upscale all the training and everything when we could replace it pretty easily, you know, so be it, right? Yes, and, and I... I Consider for for historical precedent. Now you know you you know people that will hear this will say that's that's ridiculous. We would never make such a statement yeah. or value judgment. You know that, right? Yeah, I I do. I mean, that, but again, show me what you put below the cut line. Show me what didn't get funded, and show me the balance between force preservation, force protection, and what else you spend your training dollars on. Okay. Um, I, I when when I was in. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Naval Postgraduate School in the operations uh, research classes, they used the example of Operation Eagle Claw, the, the rescue attempt for the Iranian held hostages from the embassy in Tehran, and the debacle that happened at the landing zone known as Desert One. Um, and, and in that analysis, you know, there were eight, uh, I believe, eight people who died in that Operation Eagle Claw mishap, and it caused the high visibility, obviously, national uh, command authority decision. Congress intervened. They reorganized the entire DOD, and they create SOCOM as a consequence of looking at the lack of communication, the lack of special operations-focused resources, and so forth. But that was only eight lives. It was a C-130 and some MH-53s and some really expensive stuff and a giant black eye for the, the country. Um, but it caused a major reorganization. We've, we've just lost nine lives on top of three more lives three years earlier in the Marine Corps. And what has been reorganized? What budget line has changed or will change because of this? It, it bothers me deeply as a Marine because we, we, we claim that we um, take care of our Marines, but our resourcing just isn't supporting that. And those are, but again, your point is this, those are deliberate decisions made within the infrastructure of training, quote, much, I, I don't mean only training and education command, but, but much broader training and education institution, Marine Corps. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it's the entire budget request of uh, the, the POM uh, program objective memorandum that the, Marine Corps budget officer um, working for deputy commandant of programs and resources, all the inputs to that collectively sent to the presidential budget, you know, DOD and then the um, office of management and budget that then goes across from the executive branch to Capitol Hill and the Hask and the Sask and the um, Hack and the SAC 
do their coordination and they come up with the National Defense Authorization uh, Bill and that becomes the, the defense budget. We're not, it's not that the Congress has told the Marine Corps, we're not going to give you the money for these things. It's the Marine Corps has not put those capabilities as a priority in what we requested. Above the cut line, as you said. Yeah, that's that's my observation uh, while in uniform and in the last three years observing what has and hasn't happened. Okay, let me ask you as, as we wind this thing down, what do you want to see, Walt? What I would like to see personally is, is a some oversight. Um, the, the the track record of the Marine Corps in investigating itself and holding its senior leadership accountable is not good, in 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 my opinion. We've had investigations that, unfortunately, within you talked about the the KC-130 and the F-18, right. which was reviewed, and you know, a an officer was blamed in the or accused of not having the qualifications to fly and then his reputation was redeemed when the assistant commandant uh reviewed that case and said no he was qualified it's unfair to to do that we had 20 years ago in morana arizona during the operational testing of the mv-22 the pilots were blamed for 16 years until the deputy secdef a retired marine colonel at the time um, reviewed that case and exonerated the pilots of blame. And, and, you know, we unfortunately have scapegoated Marines in some cases, I think, when it's really the institution and the, the higher level decision making that needs to be accountable. And uh, something akin to the congressional inquiry and, and oversight after Operation Eagle Claw needs to happen for, for the Marine Corps, in my opinion. In terms of its ground safety programs and its, I mean, yes. uh, let me just tell you, when you look at the, the number of times that this has been looked at in terms of underwater egress training, and the Marine Corps simply does not want to spend the money on, on, on the facilities, funding multiple shifts that they could use to put everybody through it. They just choose not to do it because it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make somebody's cut line. And, and, yeah. and, then we're, and, and we're talking about it again. It's, it's, um, I, I don't even know how you describe it. Um, I, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, being a parent who, who, who has to listen to this, to this shit that somebody decided that it wasn't important enough to spend money on and my son or daughter's dead. God almighty. It's just, I mean, it's awful. We're supposed to be better than this institutionally, but what, what you're pulling the curtain back on Walt is the way the institution, right, looks at investigations, looks at corrective action, and then applies money to that corrective action, and many times says, yeah, we need to paper this, and we need to, like, for instance, the course of action floated. Well, let's just do the chair training, and we'll call it good. We can get everybody through that. That's underwater egress training, right? Wrong. Wrong. Not even close. And so it's those decisions that you're pulling the curtain back on and say somebody's got to answer for this stuff. Yeah, I, I would like to see that. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunately the a fixation on shiny things, yes. um, yep. protecting budgets for acquisition programs is, is often the justification that we, we can't afford this because we need 
you know, Congress will reduce our authorized acquisition objective for for this platform, you know, vehicle, weapon system, C2 system, et cetera. They don't want to make the hard choices. It, 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 it's, um, it, it's very frustrating that, that this is the calculus that seems to go into the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution decisions. Um, we're just not getting the resources that we need. Got it. Let me ask you a final question. This is the general question. What, Walt, uh, haven't I been smart enough uh, in this past hour to ask you uh, that you want people to know? Well, um, one thing I would, I, I would, I don't know that it's anything you haven't asked, but in, in the larger discussion of how does the Marine Corps make these policies, the when you do have a Marine Corps order, when you have something that is staffed and reviewed, the director of Marine Corps staff has a directives management section called ARDB. So when these orders are staffed and somebody recommends we should have full underwater egress training included in this common skills program or for this MOS program or for everybody assigned to a MU, and then that gets crossed off and the words changed, that's that is archived in the adjudication of comments and the staffing. So for this 2018, December 2018 order, the Marine Corps Order 3502.3 Charlie, the staffing comments, the first draft, the, the comments, and the subsequent draft would be available for, um, for, for investigation to say, okay, who drafted it? What was in it originally? Um, what was crossed out? These decisions, the people making them should be accountable for, for what was and what was not in the final signed version of, of the, the order. And in, and in the investigation of that, what you would want to hear is, okay, General XYZ, it's your initials and this is your review that produces this deletion. Can you explain to yes. us why this is – oh, I, very easily – we did not have the funding. We did not. We and this; these were all higher priorities. And what you're going to see illustrated is exactly what Walt's talking about: a culture that that has a very monetary viewpoint when it comes to safety. And in terms of investing, especially in ground safety, a lot, then that doesn't make the cut line. Yeah. And and and, and, and again. It's not a new trend, and there's going to be people that listen to this and go, no, that's straight up true. That's straight up true. And to illustrate this, Walt, you, you related to me, you relayed to me a, uh, a story about uh, up-armored Humvees and rollovers at 29 Palms and then the impact of getting an up-armored Humvee simulator, dri- driving simulator, and the impact. Could you relate that to everybody else? And just, yeah. to, just, just to show everybody what happens when you get people the right training. Yeah. Well, as, as you will recall in Iraq, the IED was the great unexpected uh, challenge that the U.S. Uh, military faced on the ground in, in, in Iraq. After, you know, we, we came through OIF-1 almost, I want to say almost unscathed, but with very few casualties. It was only when we consolidated on the objective and began doing convoys and patrols that the convoys became the soft underbelly and where the, the, the jihadis, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, could bleed the U.S., turn public opinion. 
So we up-armored our vehicles. And at first, it was what they referred to as hillbilly armor, just welding plates on that would, might stop bullets but weren't going to really stop a, a potent IED. Then we got rid of Humvees and went to MRAPs and, and uh, armadillo packages on MTVRs to protect them and so forth. But those modifications changed the center of gravity, dramatically changed the handling characteristics of the vehicle, which still had an engine with the same horsepower. The brakes were not, you know, they were changing the brakes on Humvees with up armor as often as they were changing the oil. You know, that's how much weight was added to this. And um, rollovers were were killing people in, in uh, significant numbers, unrelated to enemy action, just these vehicles would turn at speed and they would roll over and whoever's in the turret gets crushed. So the reaction to that in 2006, using the GWAP money, congressional supplemental, this never made it above the cut line for, for tactical vehicles to have a driver training simulator until it was on the, the visibility of Congress because Marines, soldiers and sailors were, were dying or getting maimed in that. The Marine Corps procured driver training simulators, a commercial off-the-shelf simulator and in 20, at MAGTAF Training Command 29 Palms in 2006, the first up-armored uh, MTVRs with the armadillo package were fielded in March of 20, 2006. And within the first week, vehicle number one is rear-ended by vehicle number two in a slow-speed crash, but with enough momentum to crack the frame. And then it happened at a rate of once a week on average from March through May. And, and the commanding general was just livid that, you know, what, what the hell is going on here? Are we putting untrained drivers or incidental drivers in here? They should be trained motor transport officers or, or motor transport Marines. And the answer was they are. These are Fort Leonard Wood trained motor transport drivers. It's just that these are not the vehicles they were trained to drive. So we got the, um, the, up, the operator driver simulator at 29 Palms in May of 2006. And it was shown to General Hagee and it brought the SECNAV out there for his EOS, quarterly EOS. And the installation, uh, MAGTAF Training Command uh, CG, uh, Major General Doug Stones issued the edict that nobody trip tickets an up-armored vehicle until they have successfully completed every scenario in the driver training simulator. Um, so we, instituted that immediately, the Mojave Viper Support Detachment did, they saw the operator error mishap rate in up-armored vehicles go from one per week to zero for the rest of calendar year 2006. The impact of good training was immediate and dramatic. Those were the, the words that the Mojave Viper Support Detachment uh, OPSO used, and it worked. And those driver training simulators were never updated again. They have been um, attriting, you know, being cannibalized to keep a few of them in operation. And the next generation of those was not funded. Uh, the requirement was not published by TCOM. It was DCINL who drafted a requirement, sent it around TCOM to Capabilities Development Directorate, even to get a new generation of driver training simulators that will not be fielded for another year and a half now. But it, it worked and it worked very well. And when you think about training, training is the only thing you can equip a Marine with that is truly weightless and with him at all times or her. And, you know, the, the focus on shiny things, it it's, goes back to SLA Marshall's soldiers load and the mobility of a nation. Give them the, you know, invest in giving them the skills to use the equipment they have 
and because you can only weigh them down so much. And it, I would offer for consideration how amazing it is that every single aircraft fielded by Nav Air, the Army, the Air Force comes with a pilot training simulator, often level A, B, C, D um, simulators from low fidelity to, to high fidelity. And yet we field ground tactical vehicles and ground combat vehicles. JLTV has no driver training simulator, was not a requirement. The M-Razors, uh, ATVs, no driver training simulator. We're letting Marines learn on the road. In 2019, the Marine Corps had nine fatalities in vehicle mishap, tactical vehicle mishaps and rollovers, and one LA, LAV in which uh, the vehicle commander in the turret was killed. All of, um, all of these vehicles do not have training simulators for operator safety. It's, it's just a question of priorities. We could, but we don't. And we don't do that as a deliberate discussion because we don't have a culture, a ground culture, that, that embraces safety and training like the aviation community. And, uh, and, and in, the, in, in the last hour, you, you, you've told yeah. us why. Walt, first of all, um, I want to thank you for coming on and doing this. Um, not, well, every, not, 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 everybody do, not everybody does this, even when they know it's the right thing to do. And uh, in my opinion, um, articulate, respectful um, discourse, articulate, respectful disagreement is what we all owe uh, our service and the nation. And you don't see it often enough. So I just want to I want to commend you on your moral courage and uh, the articulate nature that you uh, that you express yourself. Thank you very much for doing this. And uh, hopefully uh, there'll be people that listen and uh, and they'll make the appropriate changes. And so that we don't put Marines who aren't trained in harm's way and then say, yeah, this is really unfortunate when they're killed. And they should have been better trained. And maybe if they were better trained, none of it would have happened. Yep. yep. Thank you very much, Mac. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to, to share this information and, and hopefully get it into the visibility of decision makers and, and uh, oversight. All right. Well, if uh, anybody uh, wants to contact you about this stuff, uh, is it all right if, I, if they contact me, Absolutely. if I give them your email address? Absolutely. Please, please feel free to do so. All right. All right. That is uh, Walt Yates, um, United, Colonel of the United States Marine Corps, former artilleryman, and a graduate of uh, the U.S. Navy's Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, uh, talking about uh, a couple of incidents um, and the link between the two and the failure of, uh, of the institution to take the appropriate actions so that maybe these things don't have to happen. So more of All Marine Radio coming up next right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network.